We'll go ahead and start. Just a few announcements today, not a whole lot, um, but do want to draw your attention to a few things that are happening. Um, First thing I want to uh, mention is this week, as many of you already know, uh, is Thanksgiving week. And traditionally, we have a Thanksgiving Eve service, and we will be doing the same thing this year. Uh, It's going to look a little different because of all the guidelines. We won't have... Uh, congregational singing, but we'll have the opportunity to hear from others who are going to sing to us and do some music for us. We'll also have an opportunity to uh, partake in communion together, uh, which is always a a blessing and a privilege as we remember and are thankful for the sacrifice that Jesus gave for us. So that is this Wednesday night. It's starting at 6.30, which is a little earlier than in the past, but we decided just to keep it at 6.30 like our Wednesday nights have already been going. So it's 6.30 this Wednesday. That we don't have the normal ABF, it's going to instead be our Thanksgiving Eve service. So we'd love for you to join us for that, um, and just wanted to make sure everyone was aware that that was happening. Uh, also, many of you know that we're right in the midst of our Operation Christmas Child Week, hence the shirt that my wife made me wear. Uh, but uh, we are collecting boxes still today, if you brought any in. Um, and we had a packing party yesterday. We packed 126 boxes as a church. So yes, praise the Lord for that. And that's a lot to do with your prayers, your donations, and your time. And we want to thank you for that. Um, and we have more than that that we're going to add to our total as a result of whatever you guys have been bringing in on your own. Uh, so we haven't even added those yet. So that was just from our packing party alone. So I want to thank you guys for helping with that. Now there is one thing we would ask is, um, and some of you already heard this, normally during VBS we raise money to use for shipping these boxes. And it's $9 a box, so it does get a little pricey as the more boxes we have, the more we have to pay for shipping. Uh, And we didn't have VBS to raise that money this year. Um, So we are asking if anyone could help that you would consider that. You can either drop it in an envelope and mark Operation Christmas Child, or you can give it directly to me or my wife. And uh, don't make it out to us, make it out to the church. But you can give it to us, and we will make sure that it gets put in to the collection for that. Um, You can also make out the check directly to Operation Christmas Child if that's what you wish to do, and we'll just put it in a box and it will go with it. So those are several options that you have to help us out with that. Um, One last announcement I do want to make is uh, we have a few spots still available in the near future to sign up to help with our junior church ministry. So there's a, there's a sign up that's online. I have to add a few, uh, more slots to that because I only went up to the end of December, hoping, hoping, hoping that things would be more normal by the end of December, but it's looking like we need to progress it out a little further and there will be many opportunities to sign up for that. So I would ask if you would consider that when you see that sign up come out, if you would sign up for that. So I think that's all the announcements I have. Um, and uh, if there's any other questions about anything you see in the bulletin, of course, feel free to ask anyone who might have an idea. Uh, so with that being said, we hope to see you Wednesday night at 6.30. And again, uh, keep in mind that Operation Christmas Child is going on right now. And just be in prayer for that process and prayer for those boxes as they go forward and as they go out to the, the kids who need them all around the world. So thank you for all your help, and we're looking forward to seeing what, where that goes. Thanks.
Let's uh, pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your love for your children. You have adopted us into your family, and we can only respond with gratitude. Thank you for pulling us in, drawing us close, loving us so well. Father, we, we groan in this world. We groan. Our relationships are hard. The world around us is hard. And we often don't know what to do. And so we need you. We need you so desperately to help us know what steps to take. And Father, we, we know that that pain and that tension and that struggle often touches our, our homes, our marriages, our families. And we confess our need of your grace in the closest places to us. And so this morning as we listen to your word, we pray that you would provide help that you would provide healing where there's been brokenness, where there's been pain. I pray for the marriages of this church as I have been praying for these past months. Thank you for the families that are here, the families that are represented this morning in this building and those at home perhaps watching and listening And Father, we confess our need. Every single household needs you to be at the center, to be the focal point. And every single household needs your grace, whether for healing or for strengthening, we need you. And so, Father, would you help those who've experienced brokenness this morning? the words that Jesus says that we're going to listen to and pour over over the next little while are challenging. And I pray, Father, that you would take those words and apply them appropriately to our hearts. Some of us need to hear them with comfort. Some of us need to hear them perhaps with challenges to repent. And so, Father, I pray that you would take your word and divide it out and apply it as you see fit. May your spirit be at work in your people this morning as we listen to your word proclaimed. Thank you, Father, for the power of your word. Let's not underestimate it. Speak, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't marriage magnificent? I love being married to Tamara. I love Tamara, and I sometimes think back to my marriage vows. I wonder how often you recall the specific vows you made when you stood before God and before a bunch of human witnesses and made promises to each other in public. It's a very serious thing to do, to make a vow with God as witness. And when we take our marriage vows seriously, that should affect our marriages. For me, personally... That has, on occasion, provided the needed motivation to carry on, for me to continue and press on in loving and caring for and nourishing my wife. 
I'll tell you a funny story about our marriage vows. A missionary friend of ours named Scott Woods led us through reciting our marriage vows. I said my vows, repeating after Scott, and said, I do, at the end of them. But when it came to Tamara, as it turns out, he actually skipped a vow when he was asking Tamara to repeat after him. So, as it turns out, Tamara has not promised to me to share all of her possessions with me. (laughs) As I promised to her. So I can't really hold her to it. She never actually verbalized that promise. Still, she's done a pretty good job of sharing with me throughout the 14 plus years that we've been married so far. But the promises we make, the vows we make before God when we marry, are very important. And it's to these vows that I want to redraw our attention this morning as we talk about Jesus' words about marriage in Matthew 19. As we look at this passage where he talks about not only marriage, but also divorce, I want to mention my own legacy my own family history with regard to marriage and also divorce. I've seen them both. My great-grandparents, whom I knew very well, they died in 2015 in their 90s. They were married to each other for 73 years. They died in 2015, as I said. My grandparents, so their daughter and her husband, uh, my grandparents who raised me, will be celebrating their 54th anniversary next week. So I saw up close what a marriage, how a marriage can go the distance, as it were. But there has also been significant pain and divorce in my immediate family. My mother, who died in 2016, was married four times and divorced three times. Now, given that my grandparents raised me and I lived in their home throughout my childhood, I wasn't affected the same way that many folks are who lived in a home where their parents divorced. So... I don't have experience with that kind of pain, and yet I saw the pain and difficulty uh, and suffering that it does cause relatively closely multiple times. My father also, whom I didn't know growing up, he was married and divorced twice. So my own family has had a varied experience with regard to marriage and divorce, and I want you to know that. It shouldn't cast a shadow of shame It should not cast a shadow of shame on me or my parents for the marital difficulties they experienced. And I don't feel any shame about that. And I want you to know that because I want, I don't want you to think that I or I hope anybody here among the people of Alfred Allman Bible Church would look down on you as some kind of second class Christian because you might have experienced the pain of divorce. I want us to be the kind of people who don't see divorce as some kind of unforgivable sin, because it most certainly is not. This morning, I want to talk more positively about marriage, however. In fact, I have good news about marriage to share with you. And that phrase, good news about marriage, is a book title published in 2014, written by Shanti Feldhahn. Too many people including pastors, authors, and organizations like the Barna Group and Focus on the Family, are repeating statistics that paint a very bleak picture of the state of marriage in this country. Undoubtedly, you've heard things like one out of every two marriages ends in divorce, and even marriages within the church are not any more likely to succeed. Feldhahn set out to test the validity of these kinds of statistics. She discovered that the methods used to determine these high divorce rates were significantly flawed. 
Her own research showed that, based on 2009 data, 72% of people who have ever been married are still married to their first spouse. In other words, more than 7 out of 10 people are still married to their first spouse. We might then assume that the remaining 28% of people were divorced, but that figure includes people whose spouses had died. She also demonstrates how that percentage had remained pretty steady for over a decade. You see, it's just not true that 50% of all marriages end in divorce. And we have got to stop repeating this lie. We give this lie significant power when we repeat it. Feldhahn argues what I suspect we all know to be true. Telling this lie to young people makes them feel less confident about getting married at all. And telling this lie to married couples who might be struggling makes them feel less confident that they can make it through the hard times. And telling this lie to marriage counselors and pastors makes them feel less hope when the couples they counsel are struggling and face challenges. Feldhahn quotes one counselor she talked with after she had persuaded him that the majority of couples are actually happy in their marriages. He wants to change his approach and start saying to the couples he counsels, what if the vast majority of marriages are in good shape? If that is true, then you are an outlier, not the norm. And if most other marriages can get to happiness, you can too. We can solve this and get you back to where you want to be. Now, I hope that this counselor would base his hope for couples to find true happiness and solve problems on the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God in the gospel. But in any case, we really do need to stop emphasizing the marriage crisis in America, at least that side of it. And we really do need to stop believing the lie that marriages in the church are in just as much trouble as those outside the church. The facts just don't support these assertions. Feldhahn writes, because the good news truth is that in most cases, marriage is the most amazing, delightful, and profound earthly relationship that any of us will ever know. The truth is that although most couples have to work at marriage, and some will go through very hard times, most come out the other side and enjoy each other for a lifetime. The truth is that although we can never look to marriage to make us happy, We need to be trumpeting the fact that when a couple chooses wisely and then takes the scary but wonderful step of commitment for life, they are much more likely to have that abundant relationship they are hoping for. I believe this is the kind of hope-filled optimism Jesus calls for in our passage this morning. At the same time, I know that some of you are in a tough spot in your marriage right now. I know that divorce has impacted many of you, either directly or indirectly. I want you to hear hope this morning. So let's see what Jesus has to say. We've set the stage with my own experience, some statistics and some encouraging words from a Christian author, but let Jesus' own words take center stage here. We begin in Matthew chapter 19, considering a devilish question about divorce from Deuteronomy 24.1. In verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 19, we find Jesus journeying away from Galilee into Judea, and he's on his way to Jerusalem for the final time where he will be crucified. Along the way, as usual, great crowds follow him, and he stops to heal the multitudes of sick people among them. And in verse 3, 
interrupting Jesus' great acts of compassion and mercy and healing for the people, Pharisees arrive to test him. Matthew tells us that they are testing Jesus, using the same word that describes Satan's temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. They come to ask Jesus a question about divorce. They're seeking to trip him up to trap Jesus in his words, expecting him to answer in a way that these crowds might become disappointed by his position on a live debate going on among Jewish rabbis of Jesus' day. Look at verse 3 closely as I read it. Matthew 19, 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now, the way they have worded the question with that phrase, for any cause, helps us know that they are specifically asking about Deuteronomy 24.1. From Jewish rabbinic literature from the first century, we know a lot about this debate. There were two basic schools of thought, and the phrase, for any cause, is at the center of the debate. Now, remember that Jesus' Bible and the Bible the Jews read didn't have chapter numbers or verse numbers. So when they wanted to discuss a particular passage of Scripture, they had to quote the whole verse or at least a unique phrase from that verse. That's what for any cause is. It's a reference to a phrase in Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, because this debate was so well-known in the first century, according to the Jewish literature we have about it, any discussion among rabbis about divorce would automatically take place around Deuteronomy 24.1. Now, I want us to turn back there. So if you have a Bible, turn. They'll be up on the screen as we go through this, but we want to turn to Deuteronomy 24 and get those verses out in front of us. We'll come back in a little bit to explore the proper significance of these verses later, but we need to get the details in front of us so that we can understand what's going on in the Pharisees' question here. Much misunderstanding and misinterpretation of Matthew 19 has occurred because Deuteronomy 24 has not been appropriately brought into the discussion. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, contains a single complicated sentence in Hebrew. And the ESV translates almost all of it in one sentence. So you'll probably hear the complexity as we read through it. So here we go. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before Yahweh. So for the moment... Just focus on verse 1. The Pharisees' question and the rabbinic debate surrounded the phrase translated some indecency in the ESV. In Matthew 19.3, the phrase any cause is one possible way of interpreting the meaning of this phrase, some indecency. 
So the Pharisees are asking Jesus to take a side. One group of rabbis said that some indecency referred to some form of sexual immorality, so that according to these rabbis, it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife only if she's found to be sexually immoral. You might call this the conservative understanding. The other group of rabbis, the liberal view, was that this phrase, some indecency, referred to anything that the husband felt was inadequate about his wife. This was referred to as an any-cause divorce. So, for example, if a husband was dissatisfied with a meal his wife prepared, he could immediately go to his room, grab a tablet, carve out a divorce certificate, hand it to the woman, and send her packing. No lawyers, no public record. Within a generation of this conversation between the Pharisees and and Jesus, this any-cause divorce became the universally accepted rabbinic policy. The any-cause folks won the debate decisively. And the Pharisees sure seem to be advocates of that position, and they want Jesus to weigh in on that debate. I suspect... They expect him to be on the conservative side, which would likely make Jesus rather unpopular with Jewish men who had grown to like the freedom offered in the any-cause divorce system. We'll come back to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, where we'll see that both sides of the debate had misunderstood or misconstrued the Mosaic Law. But now we need to see the divine design for marriage from Genesis 1 and 2. Jesus, of course, confounds them. He responds by initially refusing to comment on Deuteronomy 24.1. Instead, he turns their attention to the first two chapters of Genesis. Look at verses 4 through 6. Matthew 19, 4 to 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus takes us back to the very beginning, back to the foundation of marriage itself. He knows that the Pharisees have gone wrong because they've lost focus on how marriage was originally designed. We've spent time in this series already going over the points Jesus makes here, but as a kind of review, let's summarize briefly. First, human sexuality is created by God. In the beginning, God made humanity male and female. Unity and diversity, complementarity with distinctions, and equality of value with difference of roles is God's design for human flourishing. And it is God's design as a way for humanity to reflect God in His own Trinitarian nature. The fall of humanity into sin and rebellion, male and female being equally responsible for this failure, resulted in the twisting and fracturing of every aspect of God's good design here. Even the physical indicators of our sexuality are often impacted by this fall. But what remains clear from this is that God created sexuality, and He has the right to define what it means to live in this world as a male and as a female. Whether a person is male or female is a biological fact determined at conception by God. Each individual human being receives their sexual identity as a good gift from a good God. Thus, each of us ought 
to welcome and celebrate the gift of who God has made us as male or as female. Second, the union of male and female in the marriage bond was instituted by God. At the end of Genesis 2, we get to read about the original wedding. God made one woman, and only one woman, to unite to this man. The man's aloneness, the first not good reality in God's good creation, is remedied by the good creation of a woman. And there's also a job to do, a mission to pursue, and that mission includes the production of offspring, and that's a job that can only be completed by a man and a woman together. But before this mission can be pursued, the man and the woman must be joined together in the covenant of marriage. Jesus quotes the key line from Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Moses inserts this sentence to to teach the people of his own day what God had revealed to him about that original wedding in the Garden of Eden explained why the Jews of Moses' day married the way that they did. Jesus picked up on this foundational, paradigmatic element and brings it to bear on the Pharisees' trick question. Leaving, cleaving, and uniting as one flesh are the primary aspects of marriage. Leaving isn't necessarily a geographical reality. Rather, a husband must leave his father and mother in the sense of coming out from under his parents' all-encompassing parental authority so that the man is able to establish his own new family. Cleaving is a very important covenantal term. It vividly pictures the commitment of a married couple. The husband glues himself to his wife, and the wife glues herself to her husband. The word is used in covenantal contexts in the Old Testament to illustrate the faithfulness promised in a covenant. The act of becoming one flesh is certainly a reference to the sexual union of a husband and wife. It is this that ratifies and celebrates the marriage covenant. But surely it refers to more Husband and wife are intended to pursue deeper, greater, fuller unity throughout their life together. With this reminder about the nature of the covenant relationship between husband and wife, Jesus shames his questioners who are more interested in securing ways that men can escape their marriages than in helping men remain faithful to their wives. God is the divine matchmaker, however, and Jesus draws that primary point out from his review of Genesis 1 and 2. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God is the divine matchmaker. God is the one who providentially joins together every man and and woman who marries legitimately. He forges a spiritual connection between the two, whether they are followers of Jesus or not. Since God instituted marriage prior to the fall, prior to the formation of a nation or a people, we can recognize that marriage is what is often called a creation ordinance. It is valid for all people, and God is graciously involved in every legitimate marriage. And Jesus says that no human being should seek to sever that union. But the Pharisees are stuck on Deuteronomy 24.1, it seems. The Pharisees hear Jesus' words as a contradiction of Moses. In a certain sense, I suspect they are actually pleased with Jesus' answer. 
Initially, they see him as rejecting Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24, so they ask a follow-up question, hoping the listening crowd will see that Jesus has pitted Scripture against Scripture and thereby nullified God's Word. Look at Matthew 19, 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They are stuck on Deuteronomy 24.1. This is the only verse in the Mosaic Law that specifically mentions the divorce certificate. So now Jesus then is going to authoritatively explain Deuteronomy 24.1-4. Jesus allows them to back him into a corner, so to speak, but he's not trapped. In verses 8 and 9, Jesus authoritatively explains the point of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, keeping verse 1 in its context by including verses 2 through 4 in the discussion is absolutely crucial. But he also explains how divorce fits into both human experience and also God's law. Look at Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Notice this. In verses 4 through 6, Jesus quoted Scripture. In verse 8, he affirms and refers to Scripture. But in verse 9, he says, and I say to you. Jesus' pronouncement here carries the same authority as the Scripture. His Word is God's Word on the matter. So first, Jesus answers the why question the Pharisees had posed. Hard-heartedness, unrepentant sin produces a situation where divorce is a valid option. Now, it's common for Bible readers to make much of the difference between command and allow in this passage as though that solves the issue. The Pharisees said Moses commanded men to give a certificate of divorce to a woman they were divorcing, but Jesus says that Moses allowed or permitted, not commanded, men to divorce their wives. But in the parallel account of this conversation in Mark 10, 5, Jesus refers to this as a commandment. So emphasizing the word allow in our passage doesn't take us where we need to go. Instead, Jesus takes them back to the beginning, yet again. While they're stuck in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus insists that you cannot understand Deuteronomy 24 properly without considering Genesis 1 and 2. But Jesus goes further in the difficult words of verse 9. Famously, the exception clause gives us as readers the challenge of understanding just what Jesus was saying. However, I don't think his original hearers or Matthew's original readers would have had as much trouble understanding what Jesus was saying. Initially, we might think that he's taking a side in the rabbinic debate. We mentioned earlier, just considering the exception clause by itself, except for sexual immorality, we might think he's affirming the argument that would eventually lose the debate that said Deuteronomy 24.1 allowed divorce only in cases where sexual immorality has been committed. Thus, Jesus could be taking the conservative position. Instead of it being lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, Jesus is saying that it's lawful to divorce one's wife only when sexual immorality has been committed. But I think Jesus is actually getting beyond the the rabbinic debate and saying something slightly different and much more profound. Now, what I'm about to say 
might seem radical to some of you, but I'm convinced it's biblical, and I'll try to show you how and why. Divorce is not always sinful. Said more fully, divorce is always caused by sin, and almost always by the sin of both spouses, but divorce itself is not always sinful. Jesus essentially says that most divorces are sinful, but some divorces are not. That's what the exception clause implies. What makes the difference? The reasons or grounds for the divorce. The severing of the marriage union happens before any paperwork is done. So when Jesus talked about this topic in the Sermon on the Mount, he said something slightly different from what he says here. But in both Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, Jesus says that sinful divorce results in, results in adultery. If we could put both of those verses up on the screen so that you can see them together, we'll look at these and talk about the differences here. Matthew 5.32, Jesus said, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here, Jesus implicates two people as guilty of adultery in this situation. I'm going to give you a scenario with some names to try to help keep track of what he's saying here. This is complicated. So, introduce you to Greg and Sue. If Greg sinfully divorces Sue, say, divorces her for burning his food, for example, which is a real example given in rabbinic literature, then Greg will force Sue to commit adultery. Jesus is, of course, assuming that Sue will have to remarry. When she remarries, she will commit adultery with her new husband. Let's call him Jack. And Jesus says Jack will unwittingly be guilty of committing adultery with Sue. So everybody in this scenario, Greg, Sue, and Jack, are all guilty. The exception clause is there to say that if Greg divorces Sue because Sue committed sexual immorality while married to him, then if Greg divorces Sue, he will not cause Sue to commit adultery if she remarries. Only Sue is guilty in that scenario. Now, the last phrase of Matthew 5.32 is very often taken out of context. When Jesus adds, whoever marries a a divorced woman commits adultery, he is not making a universal statement of principle. Rather, he is commenting on the situation he just described. So he means, whoever marries a woman who has been divorced in this way commits adultery. As we'll see in just a moment, he's saying exactly the same thing that Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was saying. A woman who has been illegitimately or sinfully divorced still has obligations to her previous husband. That's why whoever marries her would be guilty of adultery. By comparison, let's look at Matthew 19, 9 again. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Here, Jesus focuses on one person's guilt. If Greg sinfully divorces Sue, divorces her because he found another woman more attractive, for example, another real example from rabbinic literature, and then Greg marries this other woman, then Greg will be committing adultery. The exception clause is there to say that if Greg divorces Sue because Sue committed sexual immorality while married to him, then Greg will not be guilty of adultery if he remarries. Only Sue is guilty in this scenario. But why is it adultery specifically? Why is the man who divorces his wife for no good reason guilty of adultery when he marries another woman? Because he is still obligated to his original wife. She has done nothing that breaks the marriage covenant, and therefore he has no legal right or biblical permission to divorce her. It's all about the marriage vows. He made promises to her, and she made promises to him. But in this case, she hasn't broken those promises, and yet he divorced her. This certificate, this piece of paper, does not by itself, constitute the removal of marital obligations. That's the issue in view here. Now, once they are divorced illegitimately, let's not say that they are, quote-unquote, still married in God's eyes. Instead, let's say that they are still accountable to God for the promises they made to each other. After all, if they reconcile, they will have to be remarried. They'll have to make new promises to each other. It'll be a new marriage covenant that has to be established. By painting this picture, Jesus is explaining the true meaning of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Now, I'd like to go back there for a couple of minutes and help you see this more clearly. The Pharisees, and perhaps almost all rabbis of Jesus' day, had missed the point of this legislation in the Mosaic Law. Jesus isn't saying anything new or adding anything to what was there. He's simply explaining the meaning. They had honed in on the reference to the divorce certificate and the phrase translated some indecency. But notice that the actual command in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 doesn't show up until verse 4. Verses 1-3 through in that long sentence are just setting the scenario explaining the specific case in view. Deuteronomy 24 is case law. It's a specific situation that's being regulated by a particular command. So let's go back to Greg, Sue, and Jack. Plug them into Deuteronomy 24 and see how they do. And maybe we can understand what the law was saying there and what is the whole point of all of this. So here's the scenario. And since this is even more complicated... I've sketched it out on a slide for you. So perhaps you can see on the screen, there's seven pieces of this in those four verses. So we'll go quickly through this. So try to pay attention. Number one, Greg marries Sue. Number two, Greg finds some indecency in Sue. And then the flip side of that is Sue finds no favor in Greg's eyes. Number three, so... Therefore, Greg divorces Sue. He gives her a certificate of divorce, a document, and the purpose of the document is to set her free to remarry. We'll come back to that in just a bit. But that's the point of the document, to free her to marry any man. So, Sue's got the document. 
Number five, number four, she goes and marries Jack. Number five, Jack hates Sue for some unknown reason. Number six, so Jack divorces Sue. Or, and this is important, Jack dies. So even if he dies, making Sue a widow, here's the law. Number seven, therefore, Greg, the original husband, is forbidden to remarry Sue. That's the point of the law, to forbid the first husband from remarrying her in this elaborate scenario. Why? Because Sue has been defiled by Jack. Why? And you can see this is in brackets on the screen. This is an inference. What's the reasoning? What's the logic of the legislation here? Because Greg had divorced her sinfully. Greg was wrong to divorce her for this some indecency. Let's unpack this some. So Deuteronomy 24 then, we need to make several observations from here to get the point. What's the, what's the purpose? What's the law designed to do? It's designed to protect Israelite wives. As one writer puts it, the law protects the unfortunate woman from becoming a kind of marital football passed back and forth between irresponsible men. And I think the guy who said that was British, so he's talking about a soccer ball for we Americans. So who are the guilty parties in this situation? Greg is primarily guilty, and Jack doesn't look very good either. Notice number two in this scenario. We'll talk more about the phrase, find some indecency in just a minute, because it's at the center of this whole debate. But the fact that Sue finds no favor in Greg's eyes is, I think, intended to be a stab at Greg, at this first husband. The phrase finds favor in someone's eyes means to receive grace from someone. Greg refused to extend grace to his wife. Greg is the one who has put his wife Sue in this terrible predicament. But how is it that Sue has been defiled? And why is that a problem? Sue was defiled when she consummated her new marriage with Jack. How could that be? The phrase, been defiled, is in a marriage context, can refer specifically to committing adultery. If you look at Leviticus 18.20, it says, And you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife, and so make yourself unclean with her. Be defiled. It's the same Hebrew word. Committing adultery defiles the ones involved. Thus, the legislation implies that Jack, is guilty of committing adultery as well, which Jesus draws attention to. Sue is a victim in this whole scenario. But why? Why is Sue a victim? And why is Greg forbidden to remarry her if her second husband should divorce her or even if he should die? We might think that it would be right and good for her to be reconciled with her first husband after all of this if given the opportunity. It all comes down to what that ambiguous phrase, some indecency, means. And this stimulates the great rabbinic debate that continued well past Jesus' day. As I've already mentioned, one group of rabbis, the conservatives, taught that it referred specifically to sexual immorality of some kind, while the other group, the liberals, taught that it referred to anything whatsoever. So who was right? Neither, of course. Greg is forbidden to remarry Sue in this scenario as a legal penalty, a punishment for the way he divorced Sue in the first place. He had divorced her wrongfully, sinfully, 
illegitimately. Some indecency seems to refer to something trivial, something insignificant. Men are being cautioned against divorcing their wives for trivial reasons in this legislation. The result of divorcing one's wife for some indecency is that when she remarries, she will be defiled, commit adultery, and the man who marries her will also commit adultery. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 should be understood as a warning against easy divorces, which is exactly what Jesus teaches. Implied behind Deuteronomy 24 is that some divorces are legitimate, not sinful. And this is what Jesus' exception clause indicates also. But that raises the sticky question of what then may be legitimate grounds for divorce. To crystallize the issue, let me frame the question this way. In what kinds of situations is divorce a valid, non-sinful option for a Christian? And I hesitate to make any kind of list or even go down this road here. Some people look at Jesus' reference to sexual immorality and attempt to spell out what qualifies as sexual immorality. And then we would need to talk about Paul's teaching about this issue in 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 15, about the case of the marriage of an unbeliever and a believer. And we will look at that in just a minute briefly. If the unbeliever wants a divorce, the believer should cooperate with the divorce, Paul says. And then Paul adds that the believer in that case is free to remarry without sin or shame. If we look back at Matthew 19.9 for a moment, this is one of the terrible results of taking a verse out of context. These sayings about divorce from the lips of Jesus are often isolated from their immediate context, isolated from their larger biblical context, ignoring the background of Deuteronomy 24, and isolated from their historical context, forgetting about the rabbinic debate Jesus was being dragged into, as well as what we can know about the practice of divorce in Jesus' day and in the ancient world more broadly. Remarriage was always permitted with a divorce. The primary purpose of a divorce certificate in the ancient world was to provide the freedom for the divorced person to remarry without penalties of any kind. So when Jesus or Paul make a statement that limits a person's freedom to remarry for some reason, we have to be very careful and pay very close attention to the context so that we don't universalize a limitation that was intended to be specific to a particular situation. When we look at Jesus' statements and recognize an allowance for divorce, when a husband is the victim of his wife's sexual immorality, and vice versa, according to Mark 10, we may be surprised to see Paul adding and allowing for divorce on totally different grounds. However, if we hold the two together, we can see something in common between the two situations. In both the case of sexual immorality and the case of abandonment by an unbeliever, we can see that each of these destroys one of the fundamental aspects of marriage we talked about from Genesis 2. Sexual immorality destroys the bonds of marriage by tearing apart the one flesh union of a husband and wife, and abandonment destroys the cleaving aspect of marriage, the permanent commitment to stay with one's spouse for life. So, when evaluating marriages today, whether our own or in counseling situations, if a spouse is doing something 
that threatens those fundamental aspects of marriage, we might be looking at a situation where divorce is an acceptable choice. Another way of looking at it is to see that divorce may be a valid option when one of the marriage partners breaks the marriage vows. Now, this understanding may open a wide door, a much wider door than I intend, because today marriage vows are sometimes not well thought out. I believe there's at least one engaged couple in our body. I don't know if they're here today, and maybe a couple of dating couples along the way as well. Let me address you directly as well as any other single folks who might be married in the future. Please, take your vows seriously. And consider seriously including some form of the traditional wedding vows. More and more couples are writing their own vows, and that's fine. But in doing so, they're often leaving off some specific promises that the traditional vows included. They really need to be there, folks. If I can just say something from my own heart and my own experience here for you younger folks, and this is not to add any guilt to some of you who might have been married and chucked some of those traditional vows out the window. But I can say from personal experience that it is important for me that I promised to stick with my wife for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, so that when those times of poorer, when those times of worse, when those times of sickness come, I have gone back to my vows. And so I promise to stick with her in the midst of this. And that's really powerful. And if you don't have that there, you're missing something. The traditional marriage vows are rooted in Scripture as well. There's a biblical core to the marriage vows that have come down traditionally through Judaism and on into Christianity. We looked briefly at Exodus 21, 7-11 several weeks ago. And I suggested that those verses provide three summary categories of promises that are fundamental to any marriage covenant. Food, clothing, and sex. The specific case in view dealt with an Israelite man who purchased a female slave, married her, and then married a second wife. If the man refuses to provide these three things for the woman he elevated from slave to wife, the law actually commands him to divorce her with him receiving no monetary benefit from him, from her. Divorce is appropriate in that case, it seems, because the man had broken his marriage vows. He's refusing to provide what he promised. Now, if these rights are granted to a slave wife, if you will, in the ancient world, then surely these are the bare minimum rights available in all marriages. Food, clothing, and sexual intimacy Our modern marriage vows might use the language of nourishing and cherishing, borrowing from the Apostle Paul, protecting and providing, and giving our bodies to each other, but it's the same idea. When we recognize the breaking of marriage vows as the bottom line criteria for what ends a marriage and permits a divorce, note that sequence, then we can see how important our marriage vows really are. Now, When I look at my own marriage, I can see ways that I've not kept my promises at all times. But when Jesus explained that hard-heartedness is the reason we're even having this conversation, we can see more clearly that it's a hard-hearted, unrepentant unfaithfulness that provides the possibility of divorce. One writer describes this as a stubborn refusal to repent and stop breaking marriage vows. 
Jesus' teaching, as well as God's law in Deuteronomy 24, gives the right to divorce to the victim of unfaithfulness. And many marriages today, this might not be straightforward and obvious because the couple has gone on with unresolved conflict or unaddressed neglect for a long time without any help. But the cases of sexual immorality, abandonment, and also abuse are usually quite clear. In these cases, especially when the guilty party refuses to repent, divorce is one possible, valid, legitimate way of moving on. However, it's not the only option. When a marriage is suffering, crumbling, and deteriorating, revisiting Matthew 18 might just provide the needed grace for transformation. It's difficult, though, especially in a marriage where one spouse is hard-hearted. Nevertheless, a victimized spouse can extend forgiveness. I have read stories and I have known friends who have endured affairs, abuse, and neglect, and yet extended grace, forgave, and reconciled in such a way that their marriages are happy and healthy today. But God is very realistic and practical as He takes into account our weakness and sin. He can do this because God Himself has been the victim who initiated a divorce. God has experienced two broken marriages. In one case, with the northern kingdom of Israel, He issued them a certificate of divorce, which suggests to us that there might be cases where divorce is not sinful if God did it sent them away because of their constant, unrepentant, hard-hearted, spiritual adultery. The southern kingdom of Judah committed the same sins, broke the same marriage covenant with God, and God extended grace and did not divorce them, though they did experience a prolonged period of separation. You can read about this in Hosea chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 3. God had remained faithful to both to provide food, clothing, and love in abundance, as He had promised. But both Israel and Judah spurned Him and found other lovers. So God knows, God knows personally the pain involved in a broken marriage. God knows what the pain of divorce feels like. God is on the side of victims. And His law and Jesus' teaching and Paul's letters and preaching provides healing and grace for people in broken marriages. If you're experiencing pain in your marriage, I plead with you to seek help. God doesn't want you to suffer alone. Sometimes two sinners living together are going to have a hard time living together. Makes sense, right? If we venture back to Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 and apply the principles there to our marriages, we can get the relief we need and the reconciliation that we want. The church is here to help. We want marriages to thrive. As Christians will struggle in marriage, we can find ourselves thinking about divorce or seemingly on the brink of divorce. What should we do? We must not attempt to carry on alone. We should seek to be obedient to Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, concerning how to deal with conflict and sin between professing Christians. If your brother, meaning one who professes to be a follower of Jesus, and surely your spouse, if he or she claims to be a Christian, is your closest brother, sins against you, talk to him about it. 
Thus, if your spouse does something sinful, talk about it. Don't ignore it. If your spouse listens and repents, you've reconciled and you can continue living healthily together. If your spouse refuses to listen, meaning your spouse does not acknowledge any wrongdoing, or your spouse minimizes the seriousness of the sin in question, or your spouse attempts to cover up the sin in question, talk with one or two other Christians about the issue with the intention of bringing them to talk with your spouse about the sin. Now, do not make this text a license for gossip or denigrating your spouse. Allow these Christians to make a judgment. Either your spouse has actually done something sinful that's serious enough that needs to be addressed, or they may provide some insight into why you've made a mistake in judging your spouse's behavior as sinful. But I counsel you to choose carefully who you talk about, who you talk with sin about. Be sure they are Christians who are serious about sin and they're serious about their own sin and serious about the Bible. In this kind of situation, it should probably also be Christians who know your spouse and that your spouse tends to respect. If your spouse listens and repents, you may reconcile and continue living healthily together. We should always have other Christians involved in our marriage all the time. For the Christian, marriage is not a private matter. And sin is never a private matter. Sin always, always damages relationships. And ultimately, sin seriously damages the relationship between an individual Christian and the church of which he or she is a member. These are family matters, and the church is our family. If we obeyed Jesus' words in Matthew 18, 15 to 20, more consistently in the context of our marriages, I'm convinced we wouldn't have to wrestle so much over Jesus' words in Matthew 19 about divorce. Divorce has become a problem among Christians in America in part because married couples are keeping their sins private and not getting the help they need from other Christians. I feel the need to say a brief word about the special case of physical abuse. If physical violence is occurring in the home, the immediate safety of the family becomes a matter of urgency so that it is certainly appropriate to call the police to get the secular authorities involved. When violence is present in the home of a Christian, Matters of sin, forgiveness, and reconciliation are important, but they can be dealt with over time and after the safety of the rest of the family is secured. Author Kathleen Nielsen writes, An abused spouse in a church body should never suffer alone. An abusive spouse in a church body should never be left alone. In the case of abuse, it is the responsibility of the church to address that abuse thoroughly, seeking the safety and well-being of church members and also involving civic authorities when laws have been broken. 1 Corinthians 7, 12 to 13 is relevant here. Paul writes, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now, Paul assumes that this situation would come about when one spouse becomes a Christian, not because a Christian married a non-Christian. That's a separate issue. 
In 1 Corinthians 7, 12, and 13, the phrase consents to live with is crucial. He's considering the situation of a married man who becomes a Christian or vice versa. When he becomes a Christian and his life and values are radically transformed by the gospel, his non-believing wife may not want to remain with him. However, the phrase communicates a more specific idea. We could paraphrase it as approves of making a home. The phrase depicts a very positive situation. The non-believer approves of making a home, continuing to pursue life together with the Christian spouse. The phrase does not envision a begrudging, spiteful, vindictive, or abusive situation. Thus, the stipulation Paul includes here, by which a Christian woman must not divorce her unbelieving husband, assumes that the non-Christian husband cares for his wife and intends to uphold fully the terms of the marriage covenant, which surely includes maintaining a safe and peaceful home. If the non-believing spouse feels this way, then Paul forbids the Christian to initiate a divorce. Some Christians see abuse as a kind of subset of abandonment, and this makes some sense. Let me quote a lengthy paragraph from Russell Moore along these lines. He writes, I believe abandonment would also include, for instance, abusive behavior that makes the home an unsafe environment for a person or his or her children. If you are being abused or if your children are in danger of being abused, leave the home immediately. The abuse calls for the response both of the civil authorities and the church. Call the police first to establish physical safety and temporal justice, and then call the leadership of your church. Do not, under any circumstances, put your children at risk of physical or sexual predation. The church, if suspecting such abuse, should also alert the civil authorities and also act to respond spiritually to this matter. Such satanic behavior toward the vulnerable makes a home uninhabitable and thus, in my view, clearly constitutes abandonment. Someone escaping such abuse is not in sin to divorce the abusive spouse and is, in my view, free to remarry. I concur. Look at 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So, if the unbelieving spouse initiates a divorce, the Christian must let it be so. Our English translations weaken the force of this phrase, which in Greek is a command. In this situation, Paul commands the Christian to go through with the divorce. But he then adds, in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. This reflects the typical wording of an ancient divorce certificate in the clause that sets the person free to remarry without any negative legal or social consequences. Thus, when a non-Christian spouse divorces a Christian, the Christian is set free to remarry any other single Christian of the opposite gender. As long as that man, as long as that person has not previously wrongfully divorced a spouse without any fear, guilt, or condemnation. Nevertheless, Paul's primary command for married Christians is to stay married, as he says in 1 Corinthians 7.27. 
To conclude, I want to say a word about recovering from divorce in the past. Christians who have a divorce in their past must evaluate the circumstances of their divorce very carefully. They should acknowledge their own sin and repent. If they have remarried, whether the divorce was biblically legitimate or not, God's message for them is always to remain faithful in their marriages now. Acknowledging the sins of the past and turning away from them while begging God to heal the wounds caused by the sins of others against them can be a painful process. But genuine forgiveness must occur for healing to occur. If you've been illegitimately divorced and you've chosen to remarry, Jesus does not say that your second marriage is permanently tarnished as an adulterous relationship. If you realize now that you still had an obligation to your previous spouse, acknowledge and confess that sin. But let go of any guilt. Repentance would mean that you remain faithful to the marriage that you're in now. If you've experienced divorce, know that Jesus' death really does provide forgiveness for all your sins and cleansing for all that you're ashamed of. His death doesn't erase the consequences. And it doesn't erase the pain. But for every follower of Jesus, we must look to Him who has provided total and complete forgiveness so that we don't stand before God as guilty men and guilty women, even in the case of divorce. We have to deal with God and His Word as we are right now. Not considering what might have been or what I should have done or I didn't know any better at the time. As we look back... On this past, each of us must own our responsibility for our marriage problems. And if a marriage ends, each of us must honestly own whatever sin we may have contributed to that end. But don't automatically, without good reason, take responsibility for the sin of the other person. Know that God always uses our suffering and pain, even the suffering and pain of divorce, for His good purposes. That means that when we look back at divorce in our own history, whether our own or that of someone close to us, we must be looking for what good God was doing in the midst of great evil. If we can purpose to do that, I think we'll find God healing the wounds and the brokenness. And as we rest in the forgiveness that Jesus provided, we don't have to be ashamed anymore. And we don't have to carry the shame of abuse or even of our own failures. I'll give the last word to Russell Moore. A church that is anchored in the gospel of the cross will be a church that can say to the couple in crisis, stay married, don't divorce. Can say to the wrongly divorcing person, repent of this sin against your family and your God. And can say to the repentant divorced person, God is not angry at you. You are forgiven. All at the same time. We can get there Only when families and churches and pastors and leaders love divorced people more than we fear being unpopular with them. And it can only happen when we frame what marriage is in terms of the cross. Would you pray with me? Father, you've given us marriage as the most intimate of relationships we can experience between two sinful human beings in this world. And because of that intimacy, there's great potential for great pain. Thank you 
that you can work even in the midst of that great pain by your grace, by your power at work for good in our lives, we can love each other well. We can have good, healthy marriages. We can get there by your grace. And you want us to get there. So, Father, teach us, instruct us, help each husband in this building and who's hearing the sound of my voice take responsibility for loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Help every wife listening to the sound of my voice take responsibility for submitting to and respecting and loving her husband, seeking wholeness and even happiness in the midst of their relationship. Not for happiness' own sake, but for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of your gospel spreading in this world. May our marriages reflect that gospel. And may they do that as we extend mercy and forgiveness over and over and over again. Father, give us grace. We need it so desperately. And for those who've experienced the brokenness in the midst of marriage, again I ask, Father, to bring healing and comfort. Healing and comfort. Give wisdom for the way forward for those who have been broken by these things. Thank you that your power is limitless. There's no obstacle that we can put up that you can't overcome. And so, Father, we call on you to do the great work that's needed in each one of our lives. Thank you for offering us your mercy, your grace, free of charge. We cling to it by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.